This is Making It Up, a podcast where we tell you what's happening in creative culture and why it matters. I'm Sharice Poon, and my co-host is Eugene Can. We don't always have all the answers, but we try our best to reach a conclusion that adds value to the conversation. If you like this podcast, please share an episode with a friend. We really appreciate it. All right, we've finally done it. After 90 episodes, we're changing the name. We're doing what makes sense. We're changing making it up to making it up. We're eliminating confusion. This shouldn't affect your feed, but if you do share this podcast with a friend, you can stop spelling making and just tell them it's making. <laughs> I don't even know if people recognize it in the first place. Maybe, maybe not. Anyway, here it goes. All right. Making it up. 91. Huh. It's probably a little early to to question people's reactions to the new name. Or maybe it's not even worth talking about. I yeah. mean, we can ask. If you feel strongly about the fact that we changed <laughs> from making it up to making it up, you can DM us. I am 99% certain this is one of those stupid details we at making consume ourselves over that no one else gives two shits about. I mean, I also gave you a lot of crap for giving me crap about the album artwork because I was like, nobody uses podcast apps for discovery and therefore it hardly matters what the podcast album art is. However, uh... you are trying to like future proof this. It's like... One day podcast apps will be used for podcast discovery. Like, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But I'm really happy with it. So if you feel like you hate the album artwork, you can DM Eugene and don't message Perfect. me. Perfect. But then he will just screenshot whatever you say and send it to me. <laughs> that's how, this, that's how right. this operation works. All right. Should we get going? Are you starting or me? Uh, I'll go first. They're weirdly uh, related. Or not weird. I don't know. I think maybe we do that subconsciously. Or maybe I just have like a subconscious theme in my mind. And it, this comes up every so often. But the way that we go about choosing our topics, we, we select, we hand select. How's that sound? <laughs> we hand select a few links of interest. And then I'll just share with Sharice. And I'll have a personal opinion on which ones I feel the most strongly about. And then Sharice picks from... Yeah. Whatever, whatever she thinks is I pick from the leftovers. I'm just kidding. Eugene yes. saves me a lot of time. All right, Eugene, yeah. tell me your subject today. All right. So actually, this subject is something a little bit more unique because it's not really a story or a piece of news. It's an actual interview. But the fact that it's an interview with this person makes it newsworthy. Okay, fine. Okay, yes, that's, that's correct. That's correct. Tell people who it's with. I cut you off right before you said the name. All right. So it's an interview for WWD with Ray Carol Kubo. I always say that wrong. Ray Carol Kubo. Ray Carol. <laughs> Should I get Nathan near to pronounce it? Anyways. <laughs> Nathan comes on air just to say what? No, every time you have to say her name, he comes on air and says it. <laughs> Should I? No, it's, just a complete, out, just no, it's a complete waste of our effort. It's fine. Ray Carol Kubo. Tell us who Ray Carol Kubo is. Let me rephrase this. 
It's an interview for WWD with Ray Kawakubo. Kawakubo. <laughs> Kawakubo. I'm sure it's fine. If she hears this Founder interview, of, then you can be embarrassed. I can, I can, say, I can say the brand properly. Founder of Comme des Garçons. Actually, that probably doesn't sound like it. I'm Small really looking note, forward to it. I took 13 years of French immersion that I never use. And it was Canadian French immersion, so it doesn't go very far. Anyways, all right. Yeah, oh, this, is the longest, okay. drawn out. Anyone, this is the longest, most drawn out For anyone ever. who's not, you know, savvy with fashion or like doesn't really keep up with this world, even though she's been in the game for 50 years now, can you tell us a little bit about who Ray Kawakubo is before we go into yes. the interview? So she's easily considered like a pioneer in Japanese fashion. She was one of the first people to show in Paris before it was a big thing to have Asian slash Japanese designers exhibiting outside of Asia. I think what's remarkable about Comme des Garçons is the, not to say the resilience, it's just the consistency. It's always interesting to think back on something that's really successful or respected. Like, what are the ingredients behind that? So I, I just did this little exercise myself prior and I was like, oh, I, I think that the reasons why CDG, I'll, I can abbreviate it as CDG going forward, but it's Come kind of embodied the right- everyone. That's yeah. what he's shorthanding. Yes. it's It embodies the right balance of creativity and business. So the creativity side is all the things you'll see on the runway that have probably very little commercial opportunity because they're so outlandish or they're so expensive. But then on the other hand, they've created these diffusion labels such as Comme des Garçons Play, CDG Play, and a really strong fragrance line. Sorry, let me just jump in. I just want to make sure people like can follow even if they're not in fashion. Comme des Garçons Play is probably the most recognizable because its logo is the heart with the eyes. So that's Comme des Garçons Play for folks. All right, continue. I think it's done a great job of expanding outwards and launching these diffusion labels, which there's 18 of them currently. And I think the role of a diffusion label is that it creates very clear boundaries and makes things easy to understand for the consumer. Yeah. And by virtue of bringing in fellow designers. So it's not like they just create a random brand. They might bring in, uh, I guess it's kind of fair to call it a celebrity designer, right? But it's someone that's close to the family. Sure. Because Ultimately, if they weren't a well-known entity, they probably wouldn't have, well, you know, I mean, like, Ray, you're probably going to say this anyway, but Ray's really selective about picking people who she thinks think like her. They don't have to think the same things as her. It's more like the approach to thinking is similar to her. So that's kind of how she picks mm. people to work with. I really think CDG has this versatility towards fashion that predated what we see now. And what I mean by that is... There are very clear channels of high fashion and streetwear. Mm -hmm. But then even within streetwear, considering if you consider CDG play as like streetwear, which I think very much it is, but just that luxury streetwear angle was in some ways pioneered by CDG. I'd say like yeah. with Junya, like, you know, these collaborations, the North like Face, there's almost Levi's, no way to. There's almost no way to overstate how many things Ray Kawakubo did for the first time in the industry and then push that forward like we would we would only be selling her short essentially if we didn't give her credit so tell me why you were attracted to this interview okay tell me more about why you think cdg is great this is like the, i mean honestly i should be like reveling in this because 
We get so little of you celebrating a brand or a person on this podcast. Yeah. You know what? I was thinking about that. Other things too is that by virtue of being a 50-year-old brand, I was started in 1969. I think now more than ever, that is an incredible amount of credibility, right? To, to be around for that long. Uh, I also think that founder-operator brands, such as the case of Ray and CDG, I think they actually lend themselves to the best types of brands because when you have someone that launched the brand still in the mix on the relative day-to-day, I think that they care the most. It's just hard mm-hmm. to find anyone that'll care as much as the brand you started. I guess, I guess the reason why I shared this was actually, it's almost like this weird sort of down up because down in the sense, I came across an interview at the start of the month in Vogue magazine. And I actually, in retrospect, I think they did a terrible job. Like it was a bad interview regardless. Oh, I think so too. Seeing how WWD came forward with this one, I just think it was really bad editing and or it was done to portray her in a certain way where she was negative, jaded, and uninspired. And it was also to like capitalize off of Ray's name in a way that I find kind of disrespectful and yeah, poorly done, like distasteful. Yeah. So basically this Vogue piece was quote unquote an interview with Ray, but it consisted of three questions, essentially the same question and then like one line answers. But it must have been because this WWD article, the author gives some context as to how the interview was set up. Like the Vogue one, it just seems like they sprung, they like, you know, ad hoc approached her and it wasn't like a setup thing because yeah. they wouldn't do that, you know? I almost feel it's a lose-lose when you ask the question, what excites you? And then her answer is recently, nothing. Like it just feels as though you're trying to cast in a certain light. I think I think beyond that, I that's more us speculating. That And also right? this but, is just, well, the, we're just providing context as to why this WWD interview in particular was interesting because the Vogue one came out first and there was a tiny bit of buzz to for people who care saying like oh this is such a strange and weird thing to put out about her the WWD piece I think did a much better job of humanizing her and reinforcing the fact that when Ray started it was really more about utilizing fashion as a platform and a tool versus her innate desire to be a fashion designer. And ultimately, fashion to her is, I guess it's like the business, but also mm-hmm. the, the vehicle for her ideas and her thoughts. And I what mean, I she find says it like often, five times, which is so interesting. Yes, yeah. And what I find uh, most fascinating is that when you see something that has a longevity of, of a CDG and see how consistent it is and also understand that at its very core, is someone who perhaps is known to be relatively media shy. Like it makes it more interesting, captivating when they come out and speak. Because for me personally, I think that to find people that can do the same job for 50 years shows an immense amount of signaling towards passion, right? You have to you have to really care about something to do it for 50 years. Yes, yes. I, I'm on board. With I don't know right? I, I don't know how I feel about using the word passion, but only because I feel that she wouldn't say that because of what she says i mean you have some quotes that you're gonna read us but because of what she says about fashion being a business and using fashion as a business i don't think she would ever describe fashion as her passion yeah i guess i guess it's more like 
by periphery, fashion has to be a passion. <laughs> because, I mean, that's the business she's in, right? Because she spent like, I 50 think years doing it. I mean, I think that's a pretty good indicator. But uh, also, any, you know... I, I don't know. Anyway, let's not put words in her mouth. You can read us some things. The way I look at it is like the signals people put out, right? Well, but like... That's... Okay, no. She... she passion. Passion's really weird of a word, too, to describe. Like, she never goes out and says, oh, I love doing this or like this brings me like great fulfillment so but i don't know that's different from passion what i can is passion, i can be passionate about something you don't need to love something to be passionate what's pa being passionate about something then without using the word passion i'm passionate about outcomes <laughs> that's the most abstract thing to be passionate about okay um so you're really using passionate more in like a less emotional and more commitment dedication way Yes. Sure. I guess I I'm of, the only person I that would of, ever look at something like that. Yeah, exactly. 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 Thank you. Because I think most people think of passion in a very emotion, like the word passion in a very emotional way. Like I have Fair. a burning desire to do this. So anyway, this is enough. Okay. This is a long enough debate about this word. Continue. I think what what's most interesting is that there's this one quote, and I think like a lot of the, I think I would say that in general, over the course of the interview, it some of it's a little bit more rooted around her history. Mm -hmm. But you know, since since there is a, a bit of a discussion around business, mm -hmm. there does come a part in the interview where they actually kind of dissect what it means to be uh, in fashion today and sort of the business aspect of it. One thing that was interesting is that. In the very early stages, she had a lot of support from people to take her show from Tokyo to Paris. At that time, I think that she had a lot of respect for some of the people that were really in support of her. Mm -hmm. And now looking back, those people are perhaps no longer there. Like in terms of people that are willing to stick their neck out, willing to take risks. Yeah. And WWE asked her, why do you think that kind of person doesn't exist anymore, if I'm understanding correctly? And raised... Answer is maybe because of the social media expansion and that people are more afraid of taking risks and the speed of business now. We don't have any more of the time and energy to invest in something that is new and hasn't been seen before. Maybe that's the reason why these people no longer exist. It's become a money world, a bottom line world. WWD follows up and says, I spoke with, oh, I don't know how to pronounce this name, the lady from Prada, M I U C I A. I say, huh? I say Miyoka. I don't know if that's right. Miyoka. Can you, can you do, I'll show you a quick YouTube. It's been a while since we did one of these. Oh, Mucha. Mucha? Mucha. Cha, like C-H-A. Mucha Prada. Well, you learned something new today as well. T-I-L. That's all I got to go away with today. Learned how to pronounce Mucha Prada. And then WWD responded with, I spoke with, Mucha Prada. Wait, that's how the guy said it. <laughs> so, <laughs> we probably watched the same video, right? Oh, yeah. Of that guy. Yeah. <laughs> so anyways, WWE responded, I spoke with Mucha Prada when she was in New York and she said the same thing. She said, it's all about money now. Do you think it's not a good moment for fashion? Ray was kind of lukewarm. She said, we just have to do our best. I do feel that there are people 
a few of them, who will now come through and find something new. It's a whole cycle. So I want to keep hope that there will be more. Because without that kind of search for creation, there can be no progress in humanity. This is very necessary and always has been. And when there has been that downturn, there's always been something that comes out of it. So you have to keep hope in order to carry on. But isn't it remarkable how different this answer is from the way Vogue painted her? She's still saying exactly. like, oh, I don't really see a lot out there right now. That's like stunning to me. But I have a lot of hope because like it is in this climate that there are going to be new things that come out in the future. So yes, I, I like her answer a lot. <laughs> I think that's kind of why I honed in on it. And it's a little bit unfortunate because despite all this talk about business, right after this answer, they go almost straight back into business. <laughs> but yeah. I, yeah, I think this is the one thing that that's most critical is that I find it interesting when people that have been around this long and have seen it are are not so quick to dismiss the good old days because they also have been around like how do i put this they're invested in the in the culture and the in the craft itself yeah despite being direct benefactors of the business interests people have in their brands yeah i see what you mean yeah right. you know i agree like their raise investment I, I like the word investment a lot more more than passion when describing Ray. Like her investment is lifetime, essentially. And even though she came up in a climate that was maybe more forgiving or more welcoming, it doesn't mean that she's like ready to bounce, you know, and like ready to hate on the way things are now. I was thinking about this over the course of the last few days, and every so often I, I kind of get caught up in this in this sort of rut where like you're you're overly analytical of everything mm -hmm. and you and it's not that you can't be analytical but it often forces a set of blinders on you that prevents you from seeing other things that are actually bucking the trend yeah and or pushing against the grain and you know i think that towards the end they talk about dover street market which is the i guess you could say the sister retail component to cdg yeah you can say that yeah, it's I don't know like if that, that's really they... helpful to people who are not familiar with DSM, but yeah. So with DSM Dover Street Market, they sell not only CDG stuff, but they also sell brands that the buying team deems to fit within the ethos of CDG. People that are creating new things, creating interesting yeah. things. Yeah, it's a so... physical retail location that brings together curated selection of brands and usually they have a pretty interesting way of displaying things or like their store layout even if you're not shopping i would go into a dsm for fun exactly and towards the end one of the questions wwd asked is the idea of a marketplace bringing in multiple brands what is the baseline for letting a brand into dsm she replies i thought that only one criteria would be the same way of thinking people who had something to say people who had a story to tell people who had a vision not necessarily the same vision, but something. Like, I have a vision. We wanted to work with people who had their own vision, had something to say. The main point of this also was that even if somebody was selling at a different place, the point of mixing it up with different kinds of people, with different visions, would necessarily make something new that was more synergistic, one, and one would become three. That's kind of confusing. But anyways, my plan was in order to make that beautiful chaos, we had our, own, we had our stuff in Comme des Garçons shops, Everybody had their own way of selling, but by putting it in a jumbled kind of mixed up way, there'd be something new that would come out of that mixing of it. Yeah, I really like that too. I mean, I'm a huge, I'm like a Ray fangirl. So 
the interview brings me great pleasure. But tr- trying to be objective about it, I mean, I think it's like yeah. she made a business decision when opening DSM that was really interesting. She was like, actually, instead of just selling CDG, which is really successful, we're going to give our name, we're going to lend our name basically to all of these other designers as well because we think it's way more interesting like what comes out of it, this yeah. combination of putting things next to each other in the same place. If you really think about all the fashion retailers out there, I would say for the most part, the different buckets that exist could be one, sort of a legacy department store, right? Like like some of those like that, that have been, yeah, something like that. Then you have maybe the new players, but they all generally stock the same stuff. Like these digital first e-commerce platforms. Oh, right? yeah. And that's you more mean about like scale. Net-a-Porte, stuff like that. Essence or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Stuff like that. And then the third tier, I would say, are the, the hyper-curated, right? And hyper-curated doesn't necessarily mean that it's small. It's more that there's a very clear, definitive reason why you go. Even if you're not into the clothes, but I think the experience and the POV is kind of why you're there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? I can't really like, think- I think DSM is that. Yeah, I can't think of anyone else who has done something like DSM. What's that? Wait, no, hang on. What's the one in Italy? Costa Carmel. Yeah. Yeah, similar, I would say. Ray's decision is really interesting because as like the founder, creator of 18 diffusion lines- in a house like she doesn't have to do that at all um but did you want to read some of the business quotes because i know like you kind of picked two that were not about her stance on business but i personally thought you were going this i thought you picked this because you agreed with her like business talking points well well i mean i think that her business pov is almost to not be a business that's not the creativity flow first Business ended up picking her versus her picking the business of fashion. No. Uh, am I read, missing? Read the quote. Uh, read quote the quote. The read, read. No, the no. There's one. There's one towards the top, though. Yeah. No, I ended up not using because I was like, start from the beginning. For me, I am not a fashion designer. Okay, hold on a second. Wait, I'll read it if you. Okay. No, but it's actually not one of the quotes. Um, from there. Are you po- saying at what point did you discover that you were a designer? Yeah. Okay, so WWD asks her, at what point did you discover that you were a designer? I know you don't like the term artist. Ray says, I can't remember exactly when it was, but I just knew that I wanted to work and make a living for myself, to be independent. I got close to the fashion business by getting a job just by accident at the textile factory, and then I got closer to the fashion because I was doing the styling for the textile factory. And I couldn't find the things I wanted to style, so I started making it. It was almost by chance. There wasn't a point when I said, I am a fashion designer. Which you know I like in connection yes. to the fact that I had this whole lecture in university about terms and labels. And I was like bitching to you on WhatsApp while it was happening about the, the uselessness of having that conversation of like the terms and labels you use. But you understand what I mean by that, right? No, it's not I don't. Like because, no, a- it's because she set out first as a business person. I think that's her stance. Mm. It's that fashion was incidental. Because then WD asks her, there must have been a point in which you said, I'm good at this. I have something to say. And she says, for me, I am not a fashion designer. I use fashion as a business. I never thought I am a fashion designer. It's a material to use in a business. It's an accident that I use fashion. And then her husband says, she said, please translate correctly. So give me time. The fact that CDG exists as 18 sub-labels with some vastly more 
successful than others. That to me is the the balance that comes down to like doing things for the sake of creating and doing you know that to fulfill that that philosophy around creating things that have never been seen before alongside with the business intentions of it okay hang on let me read i'm trying to read this read her quote the core central meaning but quote before we go any time. further like what are we trying to get out of this like i don't are we know i feel like both of us are just trying to saying? interpret what she's actually saying which is which is weird because I feel like she, when I read it to myself before I had this conversation, I thought it was clear in my mind. And then I talked to you and then it became unclear in my mind. Well, there's a lot of nuance in it, right? But like I'm, if I'm talking about this right now, because I basically wanted to focus more on her, okay. on her sort of perspective. But then by virtue of bringing this, it, I don't know what, what we're going to, like if we're just going to add minutes to the recording i mean it's impossible as hard as she tries maybe this says something about the editorial side as well like wwd sat down with ray for 45 minutes um being translated through her husband adrian joffe and they i think they've done all they can to make sure that they're like interpreting and then transcribing and publishing her words as accurately to what she said but it's still difficult for us to get to what she really feels or thinks maybe that's that's the thing to draw from this fact that we've been like debating a quote back and forth so you and i were kind of going back and forth about sort of her business intentions off air but i think ultimately the thing that was most refreshing is perhaps her perspective on just the need to create something new like i think that the signal that I get from seeing 18 lines of varying degrees of business success actually are quite impactful in showing that, hey, you know what? If it was left to the devices of a quote-unquote business person, CDG might just be literally a handful of brands mm-hmm. and play and a fragrance brand, right? But the fact there's so much diversity to it, I think, is a is the belief and the need to put things out mm-hmm. and to build a business around it. And I'm sure there by virtue of this type of relationship, they have to be much more synergistic where, you know, the money being made from one arm has to flow down and support the others. Yeah. But they all have a pretty clear objective within the overarching CDG umbrella. Despite the fact she's been doing it for 50 years, she has a recognition on what are the things that seem to be the most important towards building a culture. Yeah. And that's people with a vision, people that are creating new things, and people that you know, genuinely have an interest in saying something. I completely agree. But you mentioned that this actually relates to your piece. Yes. Should we go into it? It really does. Definitely. Let's do that. My piece is much shorter. This the interview with Ray is quite long for people who are interested in looking it up. But you you still should go do that. My piece comes from Fast Company and it's called How Work Became the Millennial Religion of Choice. And the reason that I think our subjects are connected, which will eventually become more clear, is that it's a lot about work as a lifelong, in your word, passion and how much importance people give it in terms of the way they define themselves and the way they think about themselves. But before I go into the meat of this, I think it is interesting that they set up this metaphor of 
work as a religion, I think is problematic because everyone thinks of religion in a different way. I'm not even sure if it's useful, but instead of like harping on the word religion and having an, an entire like vocabulary based um, argument about what that means, I'm just going to go with what this article talks about is the thing that you devote your time to, what you better yourself from, what shapes your values, and where you find community. That's essentially why they're using the word religion, because they're saying that like work mm. for young people today, um, they, they get all of those things from work as opposed to some kind of organized religion. But I don't think it's helpful to like talk a lot about, yeah, religion. Anyway, having said that, um, the stats in this are all U.S.-based, so it is a very like North American-centric kind of starting point, but I think it does apply to people all over the world. Um, it says half of Americans say they define themselves by the jobs they perform, 42%, 45%. And of those who said they define themselves through their work, 65% say it's very important to who they are as people. Um, the people who conducted this survey, the chief people officer, Rachel Bitt, she said, we have spiritual lives, we have physical lives, we like to have intellectual stimuli in our lives, we have our communities and our families and friends. Humans are complex, and to have a really healthy balance, it requires all of those components. Expecting all of that to come from your work could be an unrealistic expectation. So it's interesting to me because like the entire setup of this article and this quote says that work cannot provide all of those things. Work can't be spiritual, physical, intellectually stimulating, our community, family, friends, and a balance of all of that. But I actually questioned whether or not that's true. Like, may I guess I'm saying maybe work can be those things. Yeah. That's kind of how... Yeah, I think in general, the modern workplace has tried to modify itself to maybe hit on some of those. Yeah. Oh, also, I remembered I wanted to say work in this conversation is the way you make money. So not like you went for a workout or like I, I did work on that drawing. Work is like your job, like how you make income. Yeah. Yeah. I think the modern workplace has tried to you know, varying degrees of success, obviously, but they are trying to fulfill you in more ways than, I guess, like back in the day of our parents, like a factory job would have tried. Um, but mm -hmm. anyway, so they say the Fast Company article says that in history, work was a burden, like it was a thing that you just did as a means to survival, right? And that leisure was the ultimate goal. So that like, if you had enough money, then you could just stop working. However, it wound up being that the people who were the richest just kept, I like this phrase, buying more work and they keep doing more work. So like if you think about Jeff Bezos, like easily could just retire, right? Like the man does not need any more money, but he doesn't. He wants to keep working. He just does more work. So the question is like, why do these rich people make this choice? Are you asking me to answer that? I mean, for me, I think that ultimately it's a, it's, the intersection of both financial need and sort of psychological human needs, right? And I think that ultimately we need something to identify with for the most part. And that is a little bit of what you're provided with the right type of workplace. You're provided an identity. Maybe you disagree with my setup, right? My setup is that he doesn't need to work anymore. 
Jeff Bezos, super rich man, I think that he actually doesn't need to work anymore, at least not for financial reasons. Like he yeah. could retire, right? But he doesn't. And why is I that? I also think at his scale and his power, you can kind of do things of interest and passion and turn it into your job. But you know, that's interesting because like, this is, I do agree with this about the Fast Co article that like in history, like as in hundreds of years ago, the aspiration was to literally not do any labor. Mm -hmm. Like the aspiration was to like sit around and eat and drink and like discuss life. You know what I mean? But what Bezos does, even if it's true, like he's found things that he's interested in and he's invested in, is still choosing to like do that, you know, nine to five, I don't know when he works, like actual office labor i don't know i can't really think beyond that though right like like you you think it's self-evident like you think it's self-evident that now that he has all this money and he's successful he should just keep doing the thing that he's passionate about yeah or i think there is something tied between working and your personal well-being like i think that work in itself suggests that you have value here's an example right i remember i was in a cab a few weeks ago, like me a month ago. And it wasn't the first time, but I was speaking with a cab driver who actually was retired, but he still drives a cab like three days out of the week because he feels like it's something to do. It's something that provides him, I guess, a little bit of meaning. You know, there might have been some translation issues in terms of what he was saying and, and what I was understanding, but I think that you kind of see that quite often when, especially I see it around me, people that retire and they, don't really have a routine, they don't know what to do. It's like, oh, like your life kind of loses a bit of purpose. Good example would be actually athletes, right? Olymp Olympians who might have bad? had a job very regimented. And then the minute they leave that, they they lose something. Right. And I think that comes down to maybe Ooh. I think the athlete example is actually not a great example because that's like really exceptional type of work like extremely non-standard definition of work but my like my question is like do you think it's do you think it's bad that like when you retire you can't do you do you think possibly that it's bad for us though that like when we retire like when we stop working we feel lost or empty it probably is bad yeah oh wow wasn't really expecting you to say that why why do you think it's bad because of like the the amount of the amount of value we the prioritization we gave to work yeah in and the, the inability place. to find something that you care about beyond work okay this is this is really not going where I thought you would go with it so you do think it's bad yeah I think it's bad I think that I can understand why people identify with work and why they they find purpose in it because at the end of the day I think a paycheck is probably the easiest way to show value. That like I'm worth something to somebody. Like it's uh -huh. a it's an actual mm -hmm. tangible number, right? It's money in your hand. But when you don't have that and you don't have a job, then it depends, right? Whether whether mm -hmm. that job is removed from you or you choose not to work. Because if you choose to retire, then it, it mm -hmm. might be because you're done working. You're no longer interested. Mm. Right. And then you do have something mm. to replace that with. But then also it's like when you have seven days of the week that's free, maybe you don't need seven days of free of free time. Maybe you only need four days and you'll work for those other three. Okay, so my follow-up question to this, actually, should I give my insight on it? I don't really know if I have an insight on it. I, I don't know, I'm of two minds. I'm of two minds because like I, 
I think it's dangerous, like you, when we put so much as a society, we put so much value on work. Then what happens if we don't have work? Like you were saying, like, what if you're laid off? Then suddenly, like, the value that you put in yourself is removed. And that's really dangerous for your mental well-being. But at the same time, I also think, oh, like, you could have work that's really fulfilling. It is possible that you find a way of finding income that also brings you like spiritual, mental, emotional balance. Does that sound contradictory? Like, am I contradicting myself? Yeah, I mean, it's it's all case dependent. But I think I think ultimately, what you should try to arrive at in this thing is like have this current societal and cultural conditions pushed us. Yeah, to yeah, that is my last question. So my question, the question I wanted to end with is, or well, continue and then hopefully conclude with is if society is based around workism workism as a kind of religion of work what kind of society does that make does it make a society that prioritizes short-term individual gains as opposed to community and global betterment and does it eliminate cooperation generosity and giving does a society based on work create a less good society essentially a more selfish individualistic yeah i think i think the imbalance of it is something that you can't really forego like you need to understand that work in itself i think really pushes you to need to Mm -hmm. to focus on this one thing because if you don't achieve it then it's like it's almost as though your life's meaningless in a way not necessarily meaningless but you've yeah but the way you're saying that makes me think that it is dangerous for society as a whole because then we're all just like individually honed in on some. Yeah, it is dangerous. Like, let's say I work at Instagram, right? Then I'm just honed in on like, how can I create a feed that optimizes, you know, users for advertisers, but also doesn't make users unhappy. And that's all I'm focused on in life. And then everyone is individually focused on like yeah. their similar yeah. tasks in employment. Well, that's depressing. I guess my question is, if you were giving a speech to like a bunch of young people, would you say you should go pursue a job that you really love, that you can be really invested in and like, quote unquote, passionate about? Or would you say, actually, don't put that much emphasis on your day job? Like, it's not the end all be all. Don't stress about it. I would defer to the latter, actually. I think that the best way to look at it would be over the course of a 24 hour day, what allows you to create the most value over the course of those you know 24 hours because let's say you worked a really shitty nine to five but it gave you the freedom mm-hmm. to pursue something outside mm-hmm. of office hours that you really enjoyed so then you knit it out because the flip side i think is that we generally are in this culture where we're telling people mm-hmm. to choose things yeah. that they love and they enjoy and either they're not good at it not good enough to make yeah. money or it's always going to be a struggle. So you think to yourself, well, maybe you should reverse it. Maybe you do take that shitty banking job that you hate, but then, you know, you have your weekends free and you have the ability to go and like pursue the things you want to pursue and do it at a high level. I think that maybe that might be the a way of looking at it. That is a way of looking at it. It's less risky and you may never actually be able to make the full-time leap which might also be okay. I don't know. But at the same time as I'm on board with what you're saying as advice that I would give young people, and I think that that's the most responsible thing to tell young people as opposed to telling them, oh, go and really like apply to all the jobs that are what you think 
will give you the most fulfillment personally, right? Like, I think what you're saying is more responsible. At the same time, I think that I'm really fortunate. So I'm kind of like telling people not to go look for the thing that I have. Not that I set out and like I thought that I was going to wind up in this place where I do earn money through doing things that I am passionate about. I mean, it is really case by case, but like if I had to like generalize and say like societally what's better as like a mindset for society, it it would have to be the latter, the one where we put less emphasis on what you do for a day job, what you do for employment. If you're on the flip side and you're the workplace, what value do you get from setting up a workplace environment mm-hmm. that does mimic a religion a little bit? You mean if I was at the helm of WeWork, for example, or... Okay. Yeah. Whatever company it may be. Okay. Just if call I was it at the head of Sharice Inc. Inc. What do I get out of making it a workplace that is fulfilling? It's like I'm trying to create a workplace that provides a balance of fulfillment. I don't know. I think that's the wrong way to go about it. I think that's like deceitful. I don't know. I would rather like, let's say I was in a position of power to Mm -hmm. have a company. I'd rather be able to give people, you know, lots of maternity and paternity leave and really good health insurance and provide them with the means to like get their kids daycare as opposed to saying like, this job is going to emotionally fulfill you based off of like the tasks that you do day to day. That's a much harder promise to make, to, to do good on, which I guess still falls in that same bucket of like not emphasizing the job. You know how like there's a lot of, not to name any names, but like there are job listings that say like as a team, this is a generalization, but like as a team, you can change the world stuff like that. Like, I think that's an inaccurate vision to give. Yeah. I, th- I think that's the one thing I would probably be a little bit more careful about is telling people to blindly drop everything to jump headfirst in if it's something they're doing for the first time. Essentially, you're saying it takes time and experience to figure out what you want to spend a lifetime doing. Exactly. And also the thing that you thought you wanted to do might not actually be the thing. Yeah. That but you, you know, it's so interesting because people who are over 40, few of, fewer of them say they define, oh no, I think this is exactly in line with what you're saying. Because people over the age of 40, fewer of them said they define themselves by the jobs they perform, which just means they realized, they learned, like either my job is something I can define myself by or it's not. Whereas maybe people under 40 who say, I want to define mm-hmm. myself by my job, they, are still hopeful. I'm just interpreting data. The data does not actually say this. I'm just adding a lens to it. Our pursuit of identity is almost at a mm, catastrophically right. high level. That's probably the best conclusion to draw. We're, it's almost it's almost worrisome. The fact that we're searching for identity and like community in so many places, I think is probably the bigger broader cultural narrative that needs to be addressed. Okay, but if you have to find identity and community somewhere in in a generation that is increasingly non-religious, how do you go about doing that? Easy. Internally. 
You said, I can't believe you put easy, comma, internally together there, because I think that's pretty difficult, my friend. Well, the, the, I think finding it is easy, but actually, like... I don't think finding it is easy at all. No, it's not easy. I think the place to find it. Oh, you mean was, naming yeah. the place to find it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. I got it. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. You, you meant you haven't... That's an easy question. Yeah, like I have an easy answer, but the actual um, process is hard. It's easy to say to look internally. Wow, yeah. this has been a really philosophical episode of making it up for yeah. everyone. Should we wrap things up? Yeah, I think that's a good place to cap things off for the day. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories, focus on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at macon.com, M-A-E-K-A-N. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at Sharice at Macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or Eugene at Macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. But the easiest way is to DM us on Instagram at Macon, M-A-E-K-A-N. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.